رادیو رومی Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Radio Rumi. I am Fatima Keshavarz and I bring these discussions of the poetry and prose of Rumi, the 13th century poet and mystic who wrote in Persian but now all over the world is making a great impact. We've done many episodes of this program already, read many of his poems, have discussed um, various things about him and his life. And today, um, I wanted to focus on an aspect of his um, way of thinking, his um, way of life, and what is known about his personality and namely that is about what was his approach to religion of Islam. Before I get there, um, I want to remind you once again that you can write to me at radiorumi at umd.edu. Again, the address is radiorumi at umd.edu. So, um, let us see what we have before us uh, to talk about. Many of you, particularly if you are interested in poetry of Rumi, know that there is a very heated debate about um, whether he actually was a practicing Muslim, whether he believed in the principles of Islam, or whether he was just a rebel thinker who um, basically rethought everything and um, no religion, no institutionalized religion was really of great interest to him. I have to tell you um, upfront that if you ask this question to different people, you are going to get many different answers. In fact, you're going to get completely contradictory answers. If you talk to Farsi speakers, the majority of them will tell you that, of course, he was a great practicing Muslim. That um, what he wrote in Persian in his major book, the Masnavi, is in fact a 
Persian version of the Quranic wisdom and guidance. Scholars of Rumi will also tell you that what Rumi lived and did are deeply, deeply rooted in the principles of the religion of Islam and in the basic texts and the literature that existed at the time, namely the Quran itself, the sayings of Prophet Muhammad, and generally the practice of um, the daily, um, what is known as five pillars of Islam, namely um, fasting and praying and giving alms and um, believing in one God and, and the day of resurrection. So his work would make it very clear that all of these principles are deeply. On the other hand, um, the New Age Rumi lovers, ones who have uh, particularly um, come to know Rumi, mostly through translations of his works, are going to tell you that um, he did not believe in any institutionalized religion, that in fact, in many cases, um, he was anti-religion, and they will quote a famous verse of Rumi in which he says, I am not a Muslim, I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Jew. And in fact, very often, this kind of echo of who am I really comes out of Rumi's writings. And we have, we have seen these ourselves in these series of podcasts, in these um, discussions in Radio Rumi, that he does indeed challenge many of the principles of institutionalized religion and um, provides um, highly revolutionary and fresh, if not um, totally anti-practice kind of approaches to them. So if it's not subversive, he definitely challenges those views and wants his readers to also stay very alert in accepting principles given to them to follow. So, um, which one is the real Rumi? Who is he? Is he really a Muslim? Is he somebody who doesn't want to be associated with any religion? And does he, does he believe in God? You know, in terms of who is Rumi, I'm going to repeat really what Rumi himself says, which is there are so many of us in us. In other words, Zindu Hazar, Manumau, Ay Ajabal, Manchemanam. From these two thousands, eyes and wheeze, which one is the real me? So there's definitely moments where he wants to challenge everything, and there are moments when he wants to follow everything. And we have to accept that um, with figures like like him, um, this thought of going from one approach to another is in fact the kind of dynamics that keeps him active and alive intellectually and emotionally. What does he say about God though? Does he believe in God? Well, if we go by the references that he has in his own poetry to God, there is no question about that. 
بالا می رویم ماز بالاییم و بالا می رویم ماز دریاییم و دریا می رویم لا اله در پی الله هست همچون لا ما هم به الله می رویم Which could be translated I am from the on high and that is where I am going I belong to the sea and that is where I am going And you might at this point say up there, high up there, or the sea are very general terms, and that's correct. But then he follows up by saying, La ilaha andar peye illa lahast. Hamchullo maham be illa miravim. So that the phrase La ilaha illa which is one of the confessions of faith for Muslims, consists of two parts. In one part, it says, there is no God. And then it follows by saying, except for God. In other words, the belief is that there could be many, many smaller gods that one falls for and obeys. You shouldn't do that. You should only be for the real God. So Rumi here uses that. Saying that la ilah, there is no God, is meaningful only because there is an Allah, none other than God, after it. So, I am like that, he says, I am going, I am that law, that nothingness that goes for nothing but God. In other words, even here he's saying that there are different stages of faith. There are moments where you are in the law moment, when you cannot really hold on to anything, where your feeling is that you don't even know if there is a God or there is not a God, but then there comes a moment where you have that there is nothing but God, no God but God out there. But other than these um, kinds of very small references to uh, the, the presence of God, he does have many other indirect instances where his connection with God is very much in the background as a constant. Tafraqe dar ruh heywani bovat nafs wahid ruh insani bovat So in the Masnavi he says And he has said this elsewhere too. He says, it's only the animal soul, that is our bodies, what needs food and what needs the air and what is very physical. It's only those bodies that are separate from one another. So it's only at the level of our bodies that, are, that we are not one, that we are not connected. But nafsabawhet ruhen sonibawhet. But our souls, our inner beings, are one. They're absolutely connected with each other, which is actually a beautiful idea, that humanity ultimately is one as far as the inner beings, our inner beings and our soul is concerned. And then he goes on to explain it through a Quranic verse that 
according to to which God um, sheds its light upon the humanity. And he says, well, his light is upon us and his light is just one light. Just like God has only one light that sheds on all of us, this light is not going to be divided. In other words, our inner lives, our souls that are connected to that light are one and the same. And then he takes it even further by introducing the concept of beauty again. Remember, we've talked about this. One tool for the mystics and definitely for Rumi is bringing the beauty into the conversation all the time. That is what you stand before, you feel, you admire, you touch, and you're touched by. And that takes away the sense of not knowing, the sense of doubt, the sense of asking yourself, what do I believe in? Because that beauty in front of you gives you a sense of the divine. For as far as the Sufis are concerned, Jamal or beauty is God's main tool to attract us to his or her glory. Yek zaman bogzar ey hamra malal. تا بگویم وصف خالی زن جمال Oh my companion, my co-traveler, don't get bored with me. Just hang on one more moment so that I can tell you, I can give you a description of the beauty of that face. یک زمان بگذار ای همره ملال تا بگویم وصف خالی زن جمال. And not just the beauty of the whole face, but one beauty spot. That's the khal. The khal is a mole. Sometimes it's translated into a freckle. But really the best here for it is the beauty spot. So, not even the whole face, but just one beauty spot on that face is enough to tell you about the whole world. That bayon nayat jamal halu har dalam chist akse halu. He's talking about God. Dar bayon nayat jamal halu har dalam chist. The beauty of his face, of, of the way, of, of his way of being, of God's way of being, does not fit into description. Because the two worlds, the whole existence, is a reflection of the beauty spot on that face. In other words, that beauty is so vast, that sea is so shoreless that one khal, if you can get the reflection of that one khal, that you see what I'm talking about, that that presence, that divine 
presence in the world. And then he goes on to tell us that چونکه من از خال خوبش دم زنم نوت میخواهد که بشگافت تنم Some of these verses are really very difficult to translate because the, the inner power, the inner source of energy that comes to the service of the poem, it really is hard to, to translate. Chunkem man as khawl khubash dam zanam, when I speak about that beauty spot for a second, even breathe about starting to speak about it, not mi khawhat ke beshgawfatanam. My energy to speak, my ability, my desire to speak. And the power of speech, the, you know, the, the Logos, that wants to take me apart, wants to open up my existence and come out. And somehow in this verse, he gives us that energy that he's feeling inside. And then he continues to say that despite the fact that it's so impossible to express it and that my power of speech or my desire to speech wants to tear my being open, there is fun in it. And I'm doing it because I'm like this little ant running around um, in this silo of weeds and carrying one big grain, one big grain that is indeed bigger than its very small body. I'm sure if you have been on a picnic in a garden, watched sometimes little ants carrying something that's bigger than them, it's a very beautiful poetic image. Hamjumuri andarin kharman khusham fuzun so in trying to describe that divine beauty, which is so larger than me and my words, I'm that little ant that carries it on its own head, that carries that huge weight on its own small body. There are so many references to God in this way, and sometimes there are very direct ones. هفته آلا جهدشان را راست کرد آنچه دیدند از جفا و گرم و سرد In another story, the um, protagonist of the story, which is actually a lion, says about people who were making serious efforts to do something and is praising their efforts, says هفته آلا جهدشان را راست کرد God or truth, the truth supreme, the truth that is God, was the source behind the energy that they had, behind the work that they carried on. Everything that they saw from good and bad and hot and cold came from that um, supreme truth. In other places, he actually talks about believing in God and not forgetting God. In Jahan, Zendon Mo Zendonian. In a way, this world is like a prison and we are prisoners in it. And you can think about it in terms of time and space. We are 
we are tied by the limits of time and space. In jahan zenda unama zenda unian hafkun zenda unakhodra warhan open up a crack in the wall and free yourself from this prison. So he's talked about this world in jahan in dunya. Now he asks a gives us a very interesting inter- interpretation. Chis dunya. از خدا قافل بودن What is the world? Being heedless and forgetfulness of God. This is a very interesting interpretation because he continues that verse by telling us چیست دنیا از خدا قافل شدن نه قماش و نقده و میزان زن It's not material that you buy or money or a beautiful woman you marry um this these are not what i mean by this world by but by, by this world i mean as to be heedless about god's presence and remember elsewhere he talked about god as this light that is shining upon the whole world and basically covering yourself too much with layers prevents you from feeling, tasting the sun. So here is telling us that that covering up of yourself in the face of that light, that forgetfulness, that distance from God, that is the prison. Not actually having a beautiful home or marrying your beloved or having money. The point is what keeps you occupied and away from the thoughts of God and what takes you in that direction. Similarly, I can quote for you um, hundreds, literally, of verses that um, have quotations from the Quran directly. So when God says ta'alu, come, Quranic phrase, it's a sign of God pulling us in his or her direction. I'm going in that direction because God pulls us in that direction. And then he quotes another very, very, well-known verse in, in the Quran to the, the Muslims. Probably there are no Muslims who have not heard that, that verse, and that is, um, Verily, our return is to him. And, of course, a majority of the world religions have a parallel to this, that humanity returns at the end to God. So Rumi continues the, that verse by saying, You have read, Our return is indeed to him. So that you do not forget, so that you know where we go. In other words, our creation and our destination and the journey in between 
where we go and what we do is very much what comes to us through the Quranic wisdom which he pursued and valued very much. Now, I can also take this further and take it beyond Islam and um, remind us all that, in fact, um, it's not just Islamic tradition. Moses and Jesus are very uh, frequently featured in all of Rumi's writings, which is, of course, not at all unusual to Muslims as um, Muslims and as, as Christians and Jews are the people of the book and they are respected within the, uh, the Islamic tradition very much. But you do see the presence of these two prophets, Moses and Jesus, in particular very much in the Masnavi. And um, there is a um, story of a parrot that actually is a um, very famous story from the Masnavi. That's where the, the, a merchant is traveling to India and uh, he comes to his family and asks them what they want when he comes back from India to bring them and they all tell him what, he, what they want and then he has this very beloved parrot so he goes to the parrot and says what do you want and the parrot says well take my greetings to my friend such and such parrot in India which he does and when he takes the greeting to that parrot in India, the parrot falls and looks like it is dead. So the merchant comes back, he's very upset, and he tells the parrot the story, and the parrot here, his parrot, also falls down and, and apparently dies. And then the story goes that, of course, the merchant's very sad and, and takes the parrot out of the cage, and then the parrot flies off and... That's the lesson he's learned from his friend in India, and it's now going to fly back there and be with the, with the other parrot in India. But Rumi ends that story like many other stories that he's telling us. He says, then he explains that that falling down and being simulating death in a way from the from by the tutti by the parrot was showing its extreme lead um, and then Rumi turns to the listeners to the readers and says you should do that in your own life, you should be able to acknowledge your smallness, your need. And in that sense, you can become, you can be close to a dying parrot. And then he ends that by saying, Ta dame isao tarao zende konad, hamcho khishat khubo farkhonde konad. So the breath of Jesus can bring you back to life and like itself make you real, make you alive, make you prosper. So in other words, you see that the breath of Jesus here is life for him. So um, 
I can really go on giving you many more examples. Moses is always out there and um, he is usually talked about as the one who converses with God, Kalimullah. And so in that sense, um, we are hearing Moses and God having these various conversations, some of which I have referred to earlier on in these podcasts. But I want to end today's conversation with one important point, because at this point, you're probably thinking and asking yourself, so why is it that Rumi has such a reputation for being a um, rebel, for uh, wanting to subvert everything, for not belonging to any um, tradition? Why is it that, that he does that? Well, the truth is that he gives you the tradition. He shows how much he loves it. He explains it so well that you can tell that he is actually immersed in this tradition. He doesn't go around it. He kind of jumps right into it, right in the middle of it. And then as he is talking to you about the tradition, he uses his own interpretation his own way of reading it, to, to show you just one other dimension of the way you could understand and make sense of it all. An example of this, one of my favorites, is that is a, is a moment when he's talking to people as part of his regular discourses, and he quotes this very well-known verse of the Quran, which in Arabic means, and it's the voice of God in this particular verse addressing um, the believers and saying that I have sent down the zikr and I am going to protect it. So again, I have sent down the zikr and I am going to protect it. So at this point, every listener of this verse, every reader of this verse could ask themselves, what is this? What is the zikr? I've sent down the zikr. What does that mean? Well, the word zikr in Arabic means remembrance. And the Quran has many instances in which it talks about itself as zikr, as a way of remembrance. Um, the Quran never refers to itself as a book of law or as a means of governing um, a city or almost any other um, descriptions as much as it gives you a hint at being a way to remember God. So mostly interpreters of the Quran have interpreted this verse to mean that God says, I sent down the Quran and I am going to protect it. I'm going to preserve it. In fact, that's a very well-known interpretation of this verse. I have sent down the Quran, which is the zikr, the remembrance, and I am going to protect. So Rumi is quoting this verse and says, this is what the interpreters have said. But that is just fine. But 
in these hast. But there is also this way to think about it as well. And this in itself is a very interesting new revolutionary way when somebody sits on a pulpit talking to people and saying, yeah, there is this way that every interpreter has talked about the verse of the Quran, but I am going to give you a totally new one, which also tells people so it's possible for other scholars to give us new interpretations. And then what is Rumi's interpretation? He says that the zikr means ما در تو شوقی و طلبین هادین و حافظ آن مایی So he says that God says I have sent down the zikr which is the quest, the longing that I have put in every one of you and I am going to protect it. In other words, in this interpretation, the word zikr, instead of being the Quran, is the inner quest that any human being, regardless of their belief or their background, could have. In other words, Rumi is reading the Quran in such a way that you could be inclusive of non-Muslims and not Quranic traditions. Well, this is indeed interesting and revolutionary in some ways. Um, I have to add here that he is not the only Islamic thinker who has said things like that, and not only just in Islam, but in uh, Christianity and Judaism and many other traditions, non-monotheistic traditions also. We have teachers and thinkers who have opened up the arena and accepted those who are not sharing their own faiths and this is the instant in which uh, Rumi opens the door to non-Muslims. So I guess the best way to end this episode would be to say, at least from my perspective, he definitely is somebody who comes right from within the tradition of Islam, but he is very much willing to open the doors on others. On that lovely and inclusive note, I look forward to the next time that I'll be talking to you. Till then. Oh, man, son of